If you think about New Zealand not as your target market, but as your sandbox for innovation, now that smallness, that quickness, that community of trusted people in your network, they're an advantage. Ready to raise capital? It's time to get your dose of investment insights with the Investment Fix podcast. Brought to you by New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. Kia ora. On this very special bonus episode of the Investment Fix, we're going to hear from Silicon Valley legend Randy Commissar. Randy has a glowing CV. He is an investor at American venture capital firm Kleiner Perkins, a founding director of TiVo and co-founder of Claris Corporation. He was CEO of LucasArts Entertainment and Crystal Dynamics, virtual CEO for companies including Web TV and Global Giving. He's previously acted as a senior legal counsel for Apple and LucasArts, had a private practice in technology law, taught at Stanford University, and in his spare time, he's written a number of top-selling books on investment. Randy's also very involved in the New Zealand investment economy, specifically our growing venture capital ecosystem. He's an advisor to New Zealand Growth Capital Partners and a mentor to many of the general partners at Aotearoa's venture capital firms. Today, Randy is spending some time with Terry Allen, New Zealand Trade and Enterprises North American Investment Director, to share some of his insights, experience, and knowledge on both the opportunities he sees for New Zealand on a global stage and what we could learn from Silicon Valley, hopefully sharing some of his amazing stories along the way. So without further ado, I'll hand over to Terry. So Randy, tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up here. A circuitous route, actually. I was an attorney by training. And before that, I was a rock music promoter and worked in the public sector doing community development work for a larger city in the eastern part of the United States. And I also taught economics. So straight out of college, I taught economics at a small night cooking school in that same city. It was the end of the Vietnam War. We were teaching economics to returning vets who were studying for trade. I went to law school, worked in the public sector for a while longer, and then found my way into tech. And in tech, I represented companies like George Lucas's LucasArts, Apple Computer, and later came to work inside Apple ran a big part of their legal work, did a lot of their deals early on. And then later after that, moved on to help found a number of companies with a good friend of mine named Bill Campbell, who's very, very well known in the Valley as the Trillion Dollar Coach, is a book that was written about him and his experience here. He also is critical to Steve Jobs at his resurgence at Apple and also at the creation of Google. He was a longtime pal of mine and a colleague, and we worked together for 40 years. And then coming out of that, I took a role called virtual CEO. So virtual CEO was a strange job, actually. It was something that we sort of created here in the Valley. And it was a way for me to take my experience and apply it across a portfolio. So you think about investing dollars. I was investing my time and experience helping to manage with founders four or five companies at a time. TiVo and WebTV were some of those companies. And then after that, I wrote a book called The Monk and the Riddle, which did quite well. It was about the heart and soul of venture capital and entrepreneurship. 
And then I was invited to teach at Stanford. And I taught at Stanford for eight years. I taught entrepreneurship there. And, and then I was invited to Kleiner Perkins to bring this model, this virtual CEO model inside a venture capital firm. And the virtual CEO model differs from the usual venture capital model because it is very focused. I would do one or maybe two companies of fund and I would focus to developing the talent, not just the business, very hands-on work, not just dollars in. And did Nest, which was later sold to Google, Farmers Business Network, which we just financed now for $6 billion, be going public this year. Gusto, which we just financed for $10 billion, will be going public probably next year. So there's been very good success out of that particular model at Kleiner. And I've stopped investing actively at Kleiner and gone back to working with talent, developing talent and ideas, which is what I've been doing now for a while. A lot of that's taken me to New Zealand. Great background. Randy's been pretty involved in the New Zealand ecosystem for a long period of time. I'm just kind of curious, when you're chatting around with some of your Silicon Valley friends, and they ask, why on earth do you spend so much time in the New Zealand tech and venture capital ecosystem? What do you tell them? Well, it's interesting. The way that I ended up doing so much work in New Zealand was because I had a very good friend from Apple who immigrated to New Zealand 12 years ago now. And he brought me over first to visit, but then later introduced me to a number of people that he knew in the innovation economy. And I just found that there was a lot that we had in common. I had a lot of experience that could benefit the innovation economy there because we had already crossed a lot of the same rivers and climbed a lot of the same mountains. And there's no reason for you to be going ahead and doing things that we've either demonstrated that didn't work or avoiding things that we actually found that did work. And so sharing that became a lot of my involvement there. And I found incredible people, innovative, creative talent. I found a great infrastructure. So the ability to expand and scale opportunities is very strong. It's a very sophisticated infrastructure, both from a financial standpoint and from a technology standpoint. I was very attracted as well to the culture and the society. This is a well-governed, well-run country. And I know that if you're living there, you'll find plenty of things to complain about. But when you're elsewhere and look in at what's going on in New Zealand, you can't help but be envious of a very well-grounded, ethically value-based culture. I've been looking for an environment where we could experiment with creating an innovation economy that was appropriate to the scale and resources of the country that I was working in, rather than trying to reproduce Silicon Valley. And I had been traveling around the world, speaking and lecturing around the innovation economy hubs that were being created. And the question was always asked, how do we become Silicon Valley? That was always the question. And it was completely the wrong question of mine. Because first of all, Silicon Valley is a particular place that has a set of resources and opportunities that have matured over now 80 years. And also Silicon Valley is actually itself changing very, very rapidly. Today, what you'll find is Silicon Valley is less focused on innovation and more focused on capital and putting capital to work. It looks to me more like the private equity version of Wall Street than it looks like what Silicon Valley was when I started to get involved. And so when I look at merging innovation economies like New Zealand, I was trying to bring the lessons of 
Silicon Valley circa 1980, not 2020, because that's where you can learn how to work with limited resources, smaller opportunities, emerging entrepreneurship, and build it to the appropriate scale rather than trying to slather it with capital before it is ready and appropriate. And my hope was that if we could come up with models to do it in New Zealand, that could be the example for how we could do it in other economies that were following in New Zealand's footsteps in terms of size, scale, sophistication, and the quality of the talent. So that's how I got involved in the first place. And so when I am asked that question here in the U.S., first of all, everybody says we're investing in And I always tell them, I'm actually not investing. I'm managing my portfolio that I've built over the years at Kleiner Perkins. And I'm involved in trying to build this innovation economy in New Zealand and be a honest broker across the constituents, policymakers, investors, entrepreneurs, the university, the various different parties that have to come together in order to make this work. And the reason I'm doing that, of course, is because I believe that New Zealand can be that example. And I also have a strong emotional feeling that I would love to see New Zealand be successful in creating this innovation hub that keeps its best and brightest there and builds those global opportunities where it can be a competitive leader there in New Zealand without those people having to go to Silicon Valley or to London or to Australia. Interesting. Towards the end there, you talked about a couple of things around what you're really enjoying is starting to lean in here and address the building blocks that will make that ecosystem happen. What are the fundamental blocks that in your mind you're articulating you were thinking about to make that happen? And when you look at those, which is the one or two that really frustrate you or do you think really need a lot of work on? If you take a look at how Silicon Valley came together in the 1980s, it was a combination of great innovative entrepreneurs who were solving real problems where they could create sustained value. Number two, it was risk capital. Now, it wasn't a lot of risk capital. Kleiner Perkins in 1972, its founding year, raised $3 million. Today, it's managing probably $10 billion. And that is not necessarily a good thing if you're trying to create an entrepreneurial-focused model. And the focus of the model, certainly in the 1980s and in the 1990s in Silicon Valley, was entrepreneur, innovation, and invention-focused. The other thing that you need is you need the appropriate policy in place. You need tax policy in place. You need to make sure that there's investment in the fundamental research and development that is taken into the commercial environment and built into these companies. And you also want to make sure that you are aligned with the future talent base. So Stanford was critical to the creation of Silicon Valley. And what I found, particularly when I was on the stump four or five years ago, trying to get NZGCP funded, was talking to the government, everybody felt like, well, all we really needed was follow-on capital. And follow-on capital was critical. The angels were funding a lot of the innovation work. 
There are models for doing that. Fund, we're not really scalable models for a variety of reasons. Their deal structures and their ability to bring additional capital for scale growth wasn't there. The venture capital firms were more PE bottom line focused than they were top line dream the dream focused. So the power curve of investing as a venture capital and how that can appear to be reckless to those people who are sort of grounded in good economics. And so you really do need to pull all of these things together around a font of talent and innovation. And that was Stanford here in Silicon Valley. There's a revolving door. People like me would go in and teach at Stanford, go back out and start companies, go back in and teach at Stanford, go back out and mentor groups, go back in and teach at Stanford. This revolving door started in the 1930s. And it was not a policy of Stanford. It was done by a single professor who did it with Hewlett and Packard and put them in a garage and gave them hundreds of dollars in those days, which was enough to get their oscilloscopes working or the Varian brothers to get some of their medical devices working. And that became the model for how Stanford operates in the commercial environment that it lives in. So one of the things that I found that I constantly had to emphasize in my discussions with policymakers and with investors was the importance of having a university system that was focused not on teaching entrepreneurship, but on creating the scientific and engineering talent that could actually innovate in ways that would be sustainable and competitive. And so that is the piece that I think is probably the hardest piece to get together right now in New Zealand. Those companies that are looking out, what do you see as both the opportunities and challenges from your experience with the New Zealand companies as they compete on the world stage? Well, there's a couple. There's a refrain that you hear often from the investment community there around entrepreneurs not being ambitious enough. I've spent a lot of time with entrepreneurs in New Zealand. I don't necessarily believe that to be the case. I believe that entrepreneurs in New Zealand are really clever people, and they figured out that without the ability to get follow-on capital, and without the ability to sustain and own substantial parts of their businesses, because they get frittered away in early capitalization negotiations, that they're looking for a modest, not great result. Because that is more likely to succeed. And the upside to a more ambitious set of objectives does not reward them fully for that risk. It's not in the particular character of the entrepreneurs that they're less ambitious. I actually think that they're adjusting well to the state of the innovation economy and venture capital in New Zealand. I think that needs to change. And it needs to change by first and foremost, being able to structure better deals that give entrepreneurs the incentive to take those risks, to give them stronger ownership and say in the governance of their ventures. And I think it's very important to demonstrate to them that capital is available to them if they can demonstrate early success and scaling opportunities in their businesses. And once the infrastructure can do that, once there's that follow-on capital and the appropriate structure to give these entrepreneurs the right motivations, I don't think that the entrepreneurs are going to hold back the success I also believe, though, that one of the things that is really important here is to understand that the portfolio in New Zealand shouldn't be 
a mapping of the portfolio that we see in someplace like Silicon Valley, which is a broad portfolio with reach into all corners, whether it is clean energy or whether it is SaaS or whether it is gaming. I mean, the ability to be able to sustain that both from a capital standpoint and, and an entrepreneurial opportunity standpoint in the US is so much greater. And I do think that we're going to need to focus in New Zealand in those areas that we think we can have long-term competitive advantages. Now, it's interesting. I just read an article came up the other day where one of the NZ tech story people was asked about that comment that I had made many times. And the response was, well, we can't pick the winning areas. We just have to invest in success, which sounds very good, but I've never really figured out exactly how to do that. The reality is that investing in success is not the simple matter of thinking it through, coming up with a good idea, following it to the end, and watching it succeed. That's just not how it works. This is an industry built on luck and opportunity. It is built on having a portfolio approach to the game. You can never really pick the exact winners, but you do have to have a cluster. And it's about building those sort of reinforcing factors into your innovation environment that allows those things to build on themselves in a virtuous cycle. Clarification question there, because you talked about building out a portfolio and then you talked about clustering. So you can interpret that either in two ways. The first one you can interpret is going broad. Do you mean a portfolio that's nuanced around a specific thesis or cluster of innovation or sector? Yes. So the most recent book I wrote, which was a couple of years ago now, was actually written in response to a trip I had taken to New Zealand, where I had the same conversation for three weeks. This one's called Straight Talk for Startups. It's a hundred very short chapters on critical insights of 30 years of venture capital. And I wrote it that way, very quick, simple chapters, because what I wanted to do was to give people trying to solve these problems the advantage of my experience. So the idea was stand on my shoulders, move forward, figure it out. I don't have answers, but I have a lot of scar tissue to share with you. There's a couple of critical chapters in that book that I fought my editor to make sure I put into the book. And at the very end, I talk about luck. This is something that I've been debating with business schools in the United States for a long time now, four or five years now. I've had heated discussions on the podium with business school deans around this. And what I challenge them to do is to create a course in their curriculum on how to be lucky. The problem with the concept of luck in business is that if you believe in luck, then that somehow diminishes the genius of the people who are lucky. Venture capitalists like to think that they're brilliant for investing in the next big thing. Entrepreneurs like to think they're brilliant for creating the next big thing. And when you tell them that, yes, they're brilliant, but they're also lucky, they don't really like that. They see that as a criticism, not a compliment. But let me be really clear what I mean by luck. I don't mean the luck of being hit by lightning. I mean the luck that comes from being able to take advantage of an opportunity that is beyond your control. Something that happens outside of your plan, outside of your vision, and having the skill set to identify it, to be decisive, and to execute on it. And in the book, I talk about how professional gamblers, they worship luck. Unlike venture capitalists and entrepreneurs, they understand that luck is absolutely essential 
to their success. And they manage it as a portfolio of risk. It's a statistical set of risks that they manage. They understand that they are going to lose often. And they're going to get a lot of bad beats, which means they're going to lose when they made the smartest decision possible. They're still going to lose for something happening outside of their control. They understand that. They don't go out and blame some poor analyst in the corner for making a bad decision. God forbid they should blame themselves. No, they understand that there's luck involved in the process. And as a result, they actually optimize for managing luck. And this is what I keep arguing we need to teach in our business schools. How do you teach people to have the peripheral vision to see opportunities that are happening outside of their plan and expectations and to be decisive, strategically focused enough to know when that decision is in their favor, when the cards are running in their favor, and how do we make sure that they have the excellence in place to execute on that? Let me give you an example. I'm going to give you an Apple one because, you know, Steve Jobs is the biggest genius of all time, right? I mean, everybody says so, but I will tell you a story about Steve Jobs. One of the first things I did for George Lucas when I was an outside attorney before I was actually running LucasArts Entertainment was to help him sell Pixar to Steve Jobs, okay? And Steve had just been thrown out of Apple. He had about $50 million to his name, which was a huge sum of money in those days. And he came up to George's place and he bought Pixar for $5 million. What was Pixar? Pixar was a big iron hardware imaging processing system that George had built just for doing the Star Wars movie. It had no business underpinnings. It was just a technology and it ran in big hardware. Steve buys it. He decides he's going to try to expand it and build it into a business. He invests some 10, 15 million dollars of his own money in it. And guess what? It doesn't work. Nobody wants to buy these things. So he says, okay, great. I'm going to put them on mini computers. He goes out and does it, spends another 10, 15 million dollars, whatever it is. It doesn't work. There's no business. No, there's nobody wants it. So, oh, great. I'll put it in a software package. Well, you can run it on a PC, run it on a Mac. Puts it in a software package. Nobody wants it. So now he's starting to run low on it. At the same time, he's doing Next and he's got Pixar. And it turns out that he tries to sell the down just to get his money back. He's got too much money in this company. Nobody wants to buy it. Three businesses fail and nobody wants to buy it. And he's run out of cash. What happens next? Well, it turns out that the whole time that he's building this rendering engine, there's a little guy in the back room who's doing demos. And he's got these little demos of these little lights jumping around. And his name is John Lasseter. Nobody knows who John Lasseter is. Jeffrey Katzenberg at Disney at that moment is on top of the world. He's done The Lion King. He did The Little Mermaid. There's a whole list of great animation that he's been running out of Disney. At that point, he is God. He can do anything he wants. And he decides he wants to do a 3D movie. He looks around and goes, well, there's this little guy back here in Pixar. He used to work at Disney. We fired him five years ago. I'm going to go back to him and see if he wants to direct a movie. So he calls up John Lasseter. By the way, Jobs is nowhere in this discussion. Katzenberg calls up Lasseter and he says, how would you like to do a 3D movie? First 3D movie. That would be the first 3D movie little movie that was going to be called Toy Story. Lasseter says, well, you know, I've got my team here and I've got this equipment here. Why don't you just hire us as a production company? 
Katzenberg, who's really smart, this is the bad beat story. Katzenberg knows that nobody ever makes money on a production company. Never. So he says, sure, I'll do it. I'll give you a three film deal, $20 million. You put $7 million of film in and Disney owns the rights. You develop them. Great. He knows in the back of his mind, you know, maybe one of those movies would be good. Maybe none of them would be good. And worst case scenario, you can buy the company later because no production company ever creates value. Toy Story 1, Toy Story 2, Cars, string of hits. Changes the animation business in a radical way. What's Jobs' role in this whole thing? Pretty much nothing except he knows how to manage luck. Lasseter walks in and says, you know, Steve, we have this opportunity to make a movie with Disney. And he goes, hmm, I hadn't thought about that. But if we make that movie and it's successful, maybe somebody will want our tools. Maybe somebody will see that what we've created is valuable. Why don't we do it? Yeah, let's do it. That was his contribution. Let's do it. It was fundamentally based upon seeing the chessboard, understanding that this was something that wasn't a move that he anticipated, but he now saw it, being decisive, getting it done. And the short story here is, eight years later, he is then the biggest individual shareholder in Disney with $8 billion worth of Disney stock because Disney now needs to buy Pixar, not as a production company, but as the heart and soul of its animation business. Now, I can tell you a dozen stories like that. That's how success is created. In the rearview mirror, it's really easy to create these great scenarios. Read any case study. Read a case study about me. You know, I'm a genius, right? I mean, the reality is I'm just like anybody else who got really lucky and just took advantage of opportunities that were in front of me that I recognized at the time. That was the only thing that made me different than anybody else. Somebody presented me with an opportunity that I hadn't planned on. I was good enough to know which one to take. That's it. This is a critical thing that I think we need to understand. It is the heart of entrepreneurship. We need to understand that uncertainty is the nature of the game. And this is why the PE bottom-up approach to evaluating ventures fails. The reason it fails is at the time that you need to make that choice, there is no data. You can make up data. You can rationalize your decision, but there is no decisive data. And if there is no decisive data, you can't make a bottoms up analytical approach. So then what do you do? Do you just say, oh, I'm just going to spatter money around? No, you focus your attention on the things that you believe. Where do you believe the future is going? What are the sectors you believe are important? I'm going to be wrong on most of them, right on a few of them. So I need a portfolio of them. Then I need to cluster resources and talent and capital around those so that they reinforce each other, so that I've got talent who is coming out of companies that are solving the next problem. And I've got innovators and, and investors who understand how to invest in this top-down approach. The venture capital business has the luxury of an incredibly leveraged financial model. It's the only business I know where I can fail 80% of the time and make a fortune. And so you got to use those dynamics to your success. It's not about building a portfolio of mediocre successes. It's about finding those radical successes that fundamentally pay for the entire portfolio risk. That's what venture capital is. So when you look at that, and then when you look over the last sort of six or eight years across New Zealand, 
from your perspective, what is it that New Zealand companies could be doing better or what they do well, or where you think they're missing when they're promoting themselves to US investors? When I introduce a New Zealand company to a US investor, if it looks just like another company, like another SaaS company or something else, they go, well, why would I go invest in New Zealand? I can do that here. I can do that in Tel Aviv. I can do that in London. And by the way, I know those places and I get on planes. I know the restaurants are. I know where the hotels are. I don't know what's going on in New Zealand. Why would I make that investment? New Zealand needs to distinguish itself around those things that New Zealand knows and understands best. Now, those things will change over time. I'm not saying we lock and load and we never move forward. But if we're going to tell an interesting story to investors offshore, we've got to tell them why New Zealand. It's funny, we're talking to venture capitalists there and also to angel investors. Everybody says, well, I'd like to invest in SaaS. And I'm thinking, SaaS isn't an, an invention. SaaS isn't a product. SaaS isn't a service. What the hell is SaaS? What, what do you say when you're going to say you're investing in SaaS? You're investing in a business model? And why you like to invest in that business model? I'll tell you why you like investing in that business model. Because anybody investing in SaaS can tell me all the ratios that are important to investing in that model. It's that private equity view of the world. It's like, the reason I like investing in SaaS is because I can do the math. That's not a good reason to be investing in that business model, which is, by the way, a business model. What's the invention? What's the creation? What's the product or service that we're building that business model around? And is that the best business model for that? Or is it just the business model that your investors feel comfortable those are the things that we need to wrestle with in New Zealand going forward if we're going to create what I hope will be a really powerful, strong set of great entrepreneurial ventures that are world-class, that are global. One of the challenges, of course, in New Zealand is just a small market. You develop a product for a small market, everybody says, oh, that's terrible. How are we ever going to get big in New Zealand? Change your framework. It's a small market. It's a great sandbox. It's a fabulous place to experiment. You can do it cheaply. You can do it fast. You can get exposure to customers quickly. If you think about New Zealand not as your target market, but as your sandbox for innovation, now that smallness, that quickness, that community of well-known and trusted people in your network, they're an advantage. And that's how I think we need to think about New Zealand, which is we should be experimenting with great ideas that we have particular insights into, where we have the talent to take those ideas to early scale, where we've got the venture capital onshore to be able to take that to a level of scale that is convincing to offshore talent. And then we need to go back and tell that story about why they should be investing based upon the various success factors that we can demonstrate and the particular insights that we have as Kiwi. Nice. I'm kind of curious about what you're seeing in global trends around venture capital. If you look at what's happening in the US at the moment, if you look at what's happening with Silicon Valley, there's quite a lot of things that are starting to shift, right? And then you combine that with the enormous change in valuations. I'm just curious about what you're seeing and trends, what are the challenges that you see and what's happening with valuations? Is it sustainable? What I've noticed in Silicon Valley in particular, which I think is the harbinger of this on a global basis is over the last decade, Silicon Valley has changed its complexion. As I've alluded to earlier, when I started in Silicon Valley now some almost 40 years ago, it was really entrepreneurs investing in entrepreneurs. Kleiner and Perkins, they weren't financiers. They weren't off of Wall Street. 
They were operators. They were innovators. In fact, this interesting footnote about Kleiner Perkins was they raised this $3 million fund in 72. They put the shingle out. They expect great innovators to come to them. They're going to have to pick through a series of choices, hard choices, to find great investments. They sit there and nobody comes. They sit there and nobody comes. And they said, huh, well, then let's incubate our own. And sure enough, they incubate companies like Genentech. That was done wholly in-house with Kleiner Perkins junior associates and partners. And they did it over and over and over again. Now, ultimately, they were able to create enough of the environment in Silicon Valley, not just them, but their syndicate cohorts, that there were a lot of entrepreneurs coming to Silicon Valley that would bring ideas to them. But early on, they had to create those ideas to make sure that they had the quality investments that they couldn't find elsewhere. So it's very important to see that venture capital in those days was entrepreneurs and innovators investing in entrepreneurs and innovators. They were the same. The last 10 or 15 years, that's changed radically. By and large, a lot of the people you'll meet as you go into the venture capital community on Sandra Road or in San Francisco, you'll meet MBAs who would be just as comfortable at hedge funds or in Wall Street as they are Silicon Valley. They've never built anything. They've never run anything. And Silicon Valley has moved from a point in time when entrepreneurs and innovation was the North Star to now where capital dominates. Venture capital is about putting capital to work. Bigger and bigger funds, harder and harder to invest, lower and lower returns. That's where the industry is going. And that means that you drive up valuations, lowering returns because that capital has to be put in place. You write bigger checks. So you give companies longer private runways because you have bigger funds to invest. And so that dynamic is fundamentally changed. And I was having this conversation with the business editor for The Economist just a couple of days ago. And he said, well, when will it change back? And I said, never. It's never changing back. Why would it change back? This economics works. We've now built an industry around this economics. High fees, the carries are less important, big checks, lower returns to limited partners. Limited partners seem to be comfortable with that for whatever reason, and that may change with interest rates going up, et cetera. But the key to me is if limited partners are willing to give them two and 20 on billion dollar funds, why the heck wouldn't you do it all day long? And that means that you're no longer investing in innovation. You're trying to find places to park money where you're going to get 2x returns, right? Not 10x returns, not 50x returns. And that is where the industry is today. Now, if you take the sandbox approach to innovation in New Zealand, that's a good thing. Because once we have proven out that we have a competitively defensible and demonstrable business opportunity of global proportions, we should be able to attract follow-on capital relatively cheaply. The other part of my conversation with the editor at The Economist, he said, well, innovation used to be the competitive advantage of Silicon Valley. But now that's everywhere and it's being funded everywhere. And as I pointed out to him, capital dominates. So innovation isn't the North Star. And capital is everywhere. So there's big funds everywhere. Every place on the planet now has big funds. Even New Zealand has relatively big funds as compared to where they were a couple of years ago. So what's the advantage in Silicon Valley? 
Why would anybody come to Silicon Valley? And I will tell you, it does have an advantage. That advantage isn't sustainable long-term, but it does have an advantage. And that is power curve investing. Silicon Valley will bid up those valuations. They'll steal it from the local venture capitalist. They will bet on a adding a zero every decade to the value of these opportunities just due to industrial growth and success. They will make dream to dream bets that these venture capitalists, and New Zealand isn't alone, that these venture capitalists in these other areas feel very uncomfortable with. They're waiting for a shoe to drop. In Silicon Valley, when you're investing a billion-dollar fund with another one being raised in two years and another one after that, you're not worried about a shoe dropping. You're worried about missing an opportunity. That mentality is a competitive advantage in winning those deals because they will go where nobody else will go. They will put in more cash with more risk at a higher price. Interesting. When you look at the plays that we've got here in the ecosystem, you take the capital side out, you take the policy side out. Are you seeing any capability gaps that we still need to address in the market? There is no doubt that as impressive as the people are in New Zealand, the entrepreneurs, the investors, angel investors and venture capitalists, forward-thinking policymakers, as impressive as they are, you still lack the experience of success. So until you begin to experience success and begin to see that reinvestment of not just money, but talent and know-how, you can't help but be a little bit nervous going full hog into these marketplaces. I see that across the spectrum. I see people pulling back a little bit. You know, we talk about entrepreneurs being rational players in this market. I look at the same thing with venture capitalists. Venture capital in New Zealand has gone through some very dry years. Lots of money invested, not too many outcomes. Now there's more capital. Do you take more capital and try to put it to work or do you sort of wait for a shoe to drop? That mentality is holding New Zealand back. Policymakers, it's important to get that money out there working, get that talent developed, and raise the next fund. Continue it. And to know that what you're investing in is not returns in the first fund, but indicia of success for the future, largely around talent and largely around clusters that you see developing successfully that can, in fact, be defended inside New Zealand. New Zealand suffers across all sectors from having a lack of experience and success that gives them the confidence to actually do what they want to do as entrepreneurs, as investors, and as policymakers. Comment on Australia and what I've been able to observe there. I do think they're very comfortable with the American cowboy ethos of investing. They're aggressive. I see them as being very much in the ilk of the U.S. investor, a little bit behind in terms of scale, but having that same sort of mentality, they've experienced enough success and know they have enough access to capital in the long term that even if a fund failed, they could raise the next one. They have that confidence to be that aggressive. So I think Australia is, in New Zealand, more competitive with New Zealand venture capitalists than the U.S., venture capitalists would be in New Zealand. One of the things that I think you'll find that's lacking, even with the Australian investors in New Zealand, is you don't have a lot of company building experience inside these venture capital firms. That's another thing that you'll find traditionally in US venture capital firms. It's changing because it becomes more about later stage capital investment. But 
the reason Connor Perkins brought me on with this sort of virtual CEO mentality of doing very few deals, but being very hands-on in those deals is because getting people who are bringing more than capital to the table, but bringing know-how and understanding of the process, a comfort with uncertainty and ambiguity, an ability to help fortify entrepreneurs, both from an emotional as well as an economic standpoint in being able to get to their objectives. That's something that these venture capital firms need to have and entrepreneurs should be looking for in addition to capital. Now, traditionally at the earliest stage, and here's why. This is an example I had in a conversation on Sunday. I have two friends. One has just raised $100 million on a $500 million valuation for a company with no product, no service, and an idea that they still don't know how to execute. The other company has a product that they've completely financed on their own comfortably. It is very early stage. There's no demonstrable market, and the product is not yet ready for marketplace. So they're both kind of in the same situation, except one has $100 million and one has none. The founder of the company that has the $100 million was telling the other founder how envious he was of him. Why? Because that $100 million now puts a huge burden on that entrepreneur to find a business where none exists. He's not sitting around biding his time, looking for a great idea, experimenting with products and services, exploring new markets. He has an urgency to make sure that that $100 million is actually put to good work. And so you can actually create large complications if you're not disciplined by having excess capital. If an entrepreneur comes to me and says, I got somebody who's willing to write me a $100 million check at a $500 million valuation and value this as if we've taken out not just the first level of risk, but two or three levels of risk that we still haven't taken out. If I got people willing to do that, should I raise the money? My answer would be yes. Raise the money, put it in the bank, don't spend it. Spend it in the same way you would have spent it as if you had no money. Methodically working the deal until you find the right product service and market fit. And if you don't do that, give the money back. The money gives you the opportunity to experiment, fail, and still succeed. That's what that money gives you. But if you spend that money as if your plan was correct, you are very likely to fail. My second book, which is called Getting to Plan B, was just about this issue. And I wrote this with John Mullins from the London School of Business. We did a survey of companies in the late 2000 aughts, 2008, 2009, and found that the companies that had succeeded generally did not succeed with their first business plan. Most of them didn't succeed with their second business plan. They succeeded with a third or later business plan. And they got there through a series of experiments with sufficient capital to make sure they could fail and still move forward. That is the model I think you want to take, even if you raise excess capital. So yes, if your valuation is there and you're being valued as if risk is off the table that you know is there, and your investors know it's there too, so they're not being hoodwinked, and the money's there, put in the bank and manage it strictly against the experiments that you need to run to find market and market fit and to understand that you've got a product or service that can ultimately win before you spend that money to get to market. Hey, the last question that I'm going to ask is, in your experience having across the ecosystem, and we've talked about 
sectors or industries or particular areas of focus and how to pick that. Have you seen any in New Zealand that you think we have an unnatural appetite or ability on the stage? Well, I do. I'm probably going to tell you what you already know, which is I think agritech and sustainability are New Zealand brands. I think that New Zealand has an excellent reputation in those areas. And I do believe that those are areas that address global problems, particularly as we look at climate change, that are critical. And I think that the talent and understanding is there to merge tech and ag in ways that allow New Zealand to be a leader in sustainable agriculture. That's very important. Another is because of the policy and laws of New Zealand, you've been able to distinguish yourself in aerospace. I mean, it's not like you have a natural ability to do that, but as a sandbox in the aerospace business, based upon the government policies and support of small companies taking risks in that area, that is a really important sandbox for you to be in. You know, I've run into a number of very interesting medical device opportunities. Medical devices tend to not be as highly valued as therapeutics, but if you fund them appropriately, they can be really good businesses. And so that's an area that I think is worth developing and spending more time on. And those are just three. I mean, we can go through more, but I do think sustainability and agritech, which I clustered in one, but they're really two. I think aerospace, I think medical devices pop up as areas to explore. So, you know, in counter to the NZ tech story idea of don't focus, just invest in success, which if somebody's got a way to do that, they should tell me. I think that it's important to have a set of smart bets not all of them are going to work and see which areas work, because in those areas, you then hope to create clusters where the talent reinvests themselves in the next set of problems. I was just talking to somebody about the Weta deal, right? And they were saying, oh, you know, it's great. These guys have, you know, they sold Weta and they've sold a part of their organization with that. And they're going to be part of the game company. And that's terrific. And I said, well, where's the cluster? And they said, what do you mean? I said, there are people there who now know what the next problem is. They solved the last problem. They got a billion dollars for it. There's a whole bunch of people in there who know exactly what the next problem is. Who's funding them to do that? Go in there and find those people. Listen to them tell you about the next problem that needs solving, this next billion dollar problem. Do that. That's what a cluster looks like. Hey, thank you so much. I always learn something when I listen to you. And the flip side of it is I, I also enjoy it. I know that you spend a lot of time here. You're very generous. And the demands on your time extreme. So I just want to thank you. It's just brilliant. Well, it's such a pleasure. And I, uh, I hope to be able to continue to contribute. It's a really worthy mission. It's important. And as I said, I think New Zealand can be an exemplar for how we can build these innovation economies that are appropriately sized to the opportunity and keep the best and brightest at home. What a great way to wrap up season three of The Investment Fix. Such an incredible session with someone who has an absolute wealth of knowledge and experience under his belt. Randy touched on many of the investment options we've discussed throughout the series and gave us a real insight into the opportunities out there for those innovative, intrepid Kiwi entrepreneurs ready to take their businesses to the next level on a global scale. That was your investment fix from NZTE. For a bigger financial fix, head to investnewzealand.nz